Hi, welcome to the Save As Podcast, a conversation with the everyday designers behind iconic brands. I'm your host, Kay Funk, and these are the stories and ideas from the builders that define the products you love. I'm excited to introduce my guest for today's episode of Save As, Matt Heller. Matt is a leader within the design community, helping to create, guide, and implement a vision for some of the most iconic brands in the industry. Today, I talked to Matt about his work on both the brand and agency side of the business, how he creates a design vision utilizing both information and inspiration, and finally, we explore what it takes to transition into and become an inspiring design leader. So Matt, welcome to the show. Christina, thanks for having me. Well, kicking off a little bit into your background, sure. can you tell me and everyone else a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from? Sure. From, boy, I grew up in New Jersey, moved around a little bit when, when I was a kid. We lived in Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, but we settled down in New Jersey. We were always doing something outdoors, running, skiing, hiking. I grew up playing every sport you can imagine who I am. And I think my folks, my parents were, were instrumental as far as who I am. I grew up, you know, in a very optimistic, very driven household. We were never sitting around. My, my dad started his own company selling construction equipment. He's always, always been very mechanical, very much a tinkerer, building things. But he's also been very brand and business savvy. My mom was a teacher. She's very artistic, painting, playing music, performing on stage, and both of them were very much leaders in the community growing up. So, you know, optimism, uh, ambition, patience, they taught me to be, you know, respectful towards everyone and, and live with integrity. So I, I think they were really integral in terms of shaping who I am. Yeah, that's awesome. So aside from your parents, what kind of formed you as a young person and why did you decide to go into design? It was totally serendipitous. Um, well, not totally, but very. I was always really artistic growing up as a kid. I loved to draw, always, always, always drawing. So, you know, that seed was planted. But how I got into design, I ended up going to college at Syracuse, not for design, but because they had a great advertising program, the Newhouse School. And, and so they had a program that was a dual major between advertising and marketing. So that's why I went to Syracuse. But about halfway through freshman year, I happened upon the senior thesis show for the industrial design program. And I just, I had no idea what it was, but I went to go check it out and it blew my, it just blew my mind. And it was just this grand epiphany. I was like, holy cow, this is where I need to be. And I was lucky that they happened to have a really, you know, well-regarded ID program at Syracuse. And so long story short, you know, I, I, begged and clawed my way to get into the program. Eventually they let me in and, uh, you know, it was just an amazing faculty there. They, they each approached design with a different lens, guys like Ron Beckman, Don Carr. They really challenged us and, and I did, I did pretty well. And so it was a super experience there. I, I really fell into it and got really lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so funny because it's actually how I fell into design at Arizona State. Oh, wow. I thought I wanted architecture. They happened to have a really good ID program. And I heard about ID and I was like, okay, yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how you kind of 
yeah, there's kind of those two paths, like the people that think that fall into it and the people that have always known. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, there's, there was something to be said for, for having, uh, for being in a, in a design program within probably much like at ASU at Syracuse being in a design program within the context of a much larger university. Totally. So you get all these different perspectives. Not that you wouldn't, if you were just in an art or a design school, you still would, but it, it was uh, different and, uh, and I enjoyed it. It was super. Well, cool. So diving in a little bit into your career path. So coming out of school, where did you start? How did you get your start in design? Yeah, I always loved the footwear industry. And, and yeah. after I thought I wanted to go right out of school, you know, I just love this intersection of materials and technology and sport and fashion. How did you learn about footwear? Did you learn um, about it in school? Or did no, you- I, was, I was kind of a sneakerhead before there were sneakerheads, I guess. Okay. Um, but I also, I also wanted to get a really good sense of, of, of what design the industry was about. And so I started off, I got an offer from a small design firm in North Jersey, just outside New York city. And it was great. It was a small firm, maybe 10 or 12 people where everybody did everything. And we worked for some big clients. Oh my gosh. I can't even think of all the brands we worked for. Let's see. Jim Beam, General Motors, Coke. Gatorade, everybody, Huffy, Thermos, Coleman, all these great brands. And, and, you know, as a junior designer, I'm working alongside the head of design who sat right next to me. And it was just great, this great democratic, all hands on deck design experience presenting, presenting to clients a year out of school and just this, this amazing immersive experience with some really super design talent and big name clients. And so that's where I kind of got my feet wet. And so from there, where did you transition to? Yeah. The, for, from there, I, I ended up at Reebok. Nice. And it was it was my first stint at Reebok. I joined Reebok twice. This was the first time. I joined Reebok at the time that they were building this sub-brand called RBK. And at the time, it was really kind of a big deal. It was this great intersection of, of style and sport and music. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot like it at the time. Now, you know, that's basically par for the course when you talk about streetwear and sportswear within the sneaker industry. But at the time, RBK was, was kind of a, a new take on things. And okay. so I joined and, and I, was, I was brought on to, to help build that piece of the business. So, you know, working with, you know, musicians, everybody from Jay-Z to, you know, Pharrell at the time, worked with athletes, basketball players, collaborations, things like that. That was kind of the tip of the spear for the brand from a style standpoint. And then from there, I worked in several other categories. I worked in fitness. I worked in classics. And it was an amazing first experience. We were doing collaborations with, you know, musicians and, you know, graffiti artists and that type of thing. And I I brought in a little different lens in terms of collaborations. I brought in a guy by the name of John Maeda from MIT Media Lab. I brought in Weston Hotels. And so these really different kind of takes on collaborations. And so it was a great first kind of foray into the footwear industry. It was amazing. And what year was that? Like collaborations were probably just starting to become a thing, right? Yeah. You know, in, in the way that we think about collaborations today, it was yeah. it was kind of a, a new thing at that point. So that was, boy, that was early 2000s. Okay. Like 2002, maybe. And what was your actual position when you started at RBK? Yeah. Boy, let me think. I think I was just 
footwear designer. Okay. As as generic as it could be. <laughs> what were they what were they specifically hiring you for in terms of like helping to build that out? I'm just wondering like if they're kind of opening up this new business and they have someone that's coming from product, but more of like an agency side versus like maybe someone that's been in the industry at like an Audi or a Nike or something like that. Like what is that skill set that you think they were drawn to aside from the fact that you're just amazing? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't think, I don't even think that was part of the conversation at that point. You know, at that point, you know, it might've been, Hey, this guy's a really good designer and you know, he has a, a, a decent sense of style and he's got a great design sensibility and he gets the sneaker business and he, you know, gets this intersection of sport and, 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 and style and what we're trying to do. And, you know, we think he can help us build this thing. And I don't know that the consulting or agency mindset was really one of the boxes they were looking to check at that point. Later on in my career, definitely, because later on, you know, I, I left Reebok after about six years and joined the, the design firm Continuum. And that experience may have played into my second my second time at Reebok. But when I was at RBK, you know, it wasn't just basketball and hip hop. It was, you know, we were doing things with the advanced concepts team as well. We were developing kind of next iterations and next versions of the pump, this underfoot pump system. We were reimagining the Fury to really represent the idea of Instapump. We were doing collapsible shoes that just packed down to nothing. We sold them in vending machines. They were called travel trainers. This was way back. We sold them in vending machines in Tokyo and San Francisco and New York. And when we did that, we didn't realize that the vending machines would still be refrigerated. So when the shoes came out, they were freezing cold, which was awesome, but totally unintended. Um, So, you know, we, we, we did a lot. It was, it was really, it was sport. It was fashion. Basketball was very central to it. Um, but, uh, but that was that was the gist of RBK at the time. So from there, you went to Continuum. What kind of drove that move? Yeah. So, you know, still really thinking about what, is, what the power of design can be in a, in a very broad sense. You know, how can design affect brands? And I still love the footwear space, but I had some good friends from, from Syracuse who were in some senior roles at Continuum. They'd been there since school. And, uh, you know, we were having drinks one night and they said, hey, you should come meet some people. And one thing led to another and it's continuum. You know, it's one of the top agencies or consulting firms in the world. They had, you know, offices in Boston and L.A. and uh, Milan and Seoul and all these great locations. And they were working with just some huge, huge clients. So I said, boy, there's probably a lot to be learned there and working with just some amazingly talented people. So one thing led to another and and I ended up there and it was an amazing opportunity. Amazing. Can you talk a little bit about what you did there and some of the things that you learned? Yeah. So let's see. At Continuum, you know, it was very much a holistic, very complete approach to design. Okay. Clients like Pepsi and American Express and Timberland and Rubbermaid and holy cow, Herman Miller. All these great, great brands would come to Continuum because we had all these different great disciplines all under one roof. Obviously, obviously, product design, 
We had brand strategy, we had user research, we had engineering, we had UI design, graphic design, and every project we worked on was some combination of those disciplines. Okay. So you might be working on a project for Pepsi, for example, and the front end of that project might be driven by the user research team trying to understand. We worked on something for Pepsi's nutrition team, and it was a beverage, this protein-rich beverage that people were supposed to drink post-surgery to help them recover faster. And so the user research team really helped understand that person and their life and you know what, what fit into their life. And then from there, we kind of transitioned from a design standpoint to figure out how to package this beverage. You had to drink 64 ounces of it in a day. So you can't really carry around this half gallon of something. Right. It's like so, an algae. No? Right, exactly. <laughs> And you know, so how do you how do you package it in a size and, and form factor that's discreet, that's personal, but you can still consume that much in a day? And so we had just there's an amazing, amazing design team there, and you know I was lucky to work with some of these people, and we came up with some just beautiful, really thoughtful but very solution oriented designs. Yeah, and you know it was that was one of tons of amazing projects that we worked on there. That's awesome. Yeah. What do you think your biggest learnings were coming from the brand side and moving mm. into the consultancy side? Sure. Yeah, the, the consultancy side is is great because you have this amazing diversity of projects. Right. You, know, you might be designing shoulder bags for Samsonite one month. You might be designing titanium credit cards for American Express, American Express the next month. So you have this great diversity. That being said, in a lot of cases, you are going to be handing off the project back to the client at some point right. to see it through, take it to market or present it to the senior team, however it goes. So you don't always see it through to fruition. So, But that being said, to be able to think about a project from all these different sides to design a product experience as opposed to just designing a product forces you to think about something in a much broader, more macro, more macro way. Yeah. That being said, on the corporate side, you're expected, you know, you're expected to take things through to manufacture and to production. And, you know, you're, you're talking about nuances and details that don't always, that you don't always get to touch. Uh, on the consultancy side. So that's not always the case, but the opportunity to take something across the finish line on the corporate side and really see it through to fruition, I think is super satisfying for me and for a lot of people. Other people, you know, they might be fine kind of staying at 10,000 feet and moving on to the next project. And, you know, really that, that appeal of diversity of projects. And then the, as a consultant or as an agency, you're able to zoom out you're able to, you can kind of play the outsider. You, you can sometimes be a bit more objective. You can zoom out and step away from it and look at it through a different lens than you would if you're in something day to day. Now, that being said, you know, being in something day to day has its benefits too. You really develop a, an understanding of the nuances of a brand and that type of thing. But being able to step back and tap into other experiences from other industries or other brands is super valuable as well. So there's really, there's benefits, there's pros and cons of both, but that, that objectivity 
can be valuable because a lot of times I've been in organizations on the corporate side where people are so close to something that there may be decisions that are being made in a very insulated way. And you have to step back and realize when you're talking to your consumer or when you're talking to yourselves, because that, that can be a tricky, a tricky line to walk. Yeah, totally. I think there's something interesting to this sort of like viewpoint of being at a consultancy and getting to do all this like super fresh research and like really putting the consumer at the forefront. Whereas when you're in a brand, you are definitely balancing more, a little bit more of that like brand point of view. And I think it does produce different designs for better or worse on either side. Right. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, agencies sometimes, or consultancies, whatever you would call them, there's, there, there's an approach to design that's very consumer-centric or very user-centric. And there's an approach to design that's very brand-centric. Yeah. And neither one is right or wrong. Digging into your consumers' lives, you're, you're kind of immersing yourself in their environment to understand what's important to them. And then the, the flip side of that is understanding what a brand stands for, unpacking the attributes or characteristics of a brand and kind of deciphering what that looks and feels like. You know, I think of a couple of examples at Continuum. One of our big clients was Rubbermaid and they challenged us to basically help them decipher what was the future of home storage. Say, okay, okay, that's cool. So we spent a lot of time in people's attics and people's basements and people's bathrooms and people's closets. And pretty quickly, we realized it's not just about storage. It's this much bigger concept of organizing our lives. And so that was an approach to design that's very user-centric. And we developed this amazing catalog and portfolio of, of future concepts for Rubbermaid that were just you know, we were inspired by everything from like Japanese bento boxes to like classic shaker, you know, beauty and simplicity type design. We we're inspired by the footwear industry with soft and hard materials. So that's, you know, very, very user centric. At Reebok with classics, you know, we, we unpacked what classics was about. It was about the archive and the origins and the history of the brand and resurfacing those ingredients in really fresh ways. Yeah. And that was really about what the brand was about. And so either one is right. It just, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's some combination of the two. I, you know, it's information, but it's inspiration. So I think it's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. So you have this idea of brand vision and how it is informed by inspiration and information. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on your thinking around that and maybe some of the experiences that you've had that brought that idea to fruition or how you apply that? Mm -hmm. And if you want to talk about it in terms of like when you got back to Reebok, some of the work that you were doing there and like you mentioned classics and how you reimagined classics. So you mentioned brand vision. So, you know, unpacking what a brand stands for and then kind of using that as your jumping off point. I think of a couple of examples. One is when I got back to Reebok, I was in charge of the classics design team. 
Another one was when I did some work with Gatorade. We redesigned their their packaging portfolio. And another was with American Express. We did a lot of work with their their Centurion brand, which is you know the black card. So with classics, I mean classics is the cornerstone of Reebok's brand. You know that's that's the history of the brand. They've been around longer than nearly any brand in the industry. And when I got there, not a lot of people knew that either internally or externally. And so, you know, there was, there was great product on the shelf, but it really didn't have a lot of connectivity. There was really no kind of connected point of view or, or central thread that connected it. So we realized pretty, pretty quickly that this concept of origins needed to be central to, to everything we did. And so it was up to us to really uncover those stories. And uh, what we did, we really dug through the archives, which didn't exist. The archives was something we talked about, but it was in people's filing cabinets and closets and garages and that kind of thing. So kudos to the merchandising team and the design team for really bringing all this product together that people didn't know existed. And and what we needed to do was really celebrate these iconic models from the 70s and 80s um, and 90s celebrate them in very authentic ways to reintroduce younger consumers to them, but also celebrate and reimagine them in very modern and unexpected ways to, to make them relevant again. And so, you know, I was lucky enough to have just an amazing, amazing design team at the time. And it was a team that was diverse in background, diverse in skills. Everybody had their own superpower. And, and it was just an amazing kind of lightning strikes team. And it was just, I was lucky to have it and made my job really easy. But it was really this concept of origins that was adopted by the entire brand in a big, big way. It was adopted adopted by e-com. It was adopted by marketing. It showed up on the website and it showed up at trade shows. And that really became the central vision, the brand vision for what we did. So things like the Aztec from 1979, uh, a guy by the name of Paul Smith brought that back in a really savvy way with just great detailing, very, very authentic. And then you had other folks on the team who would really reimagine iconic shoes. Jeremy Salee reimagined some amazing classic running shoes as these really bold basketball shoes. You know, guys like Jay and Carlos bringing these amazing color combinations and patterns together in ways that were direct from the archive, but done in ways that no one had ever thought of before. Tracy and LED had just an amazing lens to bring these iconic, traditionally men's basketball shoes, but they reimagined them into these just beautiful sneaker wedges and just gorgeous women's only shoes. So it was, you know, it was a real dig into the archives to celebrate the brand in very authentic ways, but also really, really unexpected ways too. And that was all around this concept of, of brand vision. When you can have that that focus and that clarity about what your brand stands for, then you give everybody ownership and you give everybody license to do what they think is right. And you empower your team to do what they're great at. And then you're able to step back and say, all right, I've given you guys the tools and the clarity, have at it. Yeah. And that's the ideal. Can you talk a little bit about that process to get there? Like what was the state of the business of classics when you got to classics? Was classics a thing? Was like how much reimagining of what classics look like? Because I know, like, 
just from having worked there, you guys had to pull a lot of product from the market. What did it look like? And then how did you set that vision going forward? And how did you start to build that out so that you could empower the team to then create amazing product? Sure. Yeah. When I, when I got there, and these are not my words, but when I got, <laughs> when I got there, I think the, the creative director at the time said, Classics is a yard sale right now. We, <laughs> we need your help to, to bring some order to this place. And that being said, it was by far the biggest business in the brand. I, I think Reebok, I don't remember the numbers. I think it was maybe $1.5 at the time. And I think uh, when I left, it might have been $1.8. And, and I mean, Classics, there was some great product, like I mentioned, but it was, it was definitely a hodgepodge. There was, you know, there wasn't a lot of consistent stories happening and there wasn't anything. It was, it was very reactive, let's say to regional needs. Okay. So, you know, the Southeast might be getting what they needed. You know, the Midwest might be getting what they needed. The UK might, might have something else. Japan might have this. And so we really needed a common thread to show up as a brand. Yeah. And that was, that was pretty clear, pretty evident right away. Now, that being said, there were some models from the archive that people knew and people talked about. And, you know, they, they were the popular models that, you know, did volume and people knew well. But there was so much more. There's so, so. And even even today, there's yeah. so much great product in the archive that's long overdue to be resurfaced. You know, Gatorade was another great project. And, and that was one where... You know, there was certainly a lot of user understanding that, that needed to happen in terms of the types of people that drink Gatorade, yeah. whether it's, you know, guys, you know, on, on the basketball court in the city or, you know, moms or dads bringing Gatorade to their kids' soccer games or people just drinking it casually. And there was a lot of, you know, Gatorade penetrates a lot of different parts of a really broad consumer base, let's say. Yeah. And so we had to understand all these different people. Do they pour it? Do they chug it? How big is too big to chug? Do you share it with your friends? What do you do with it? Where do you put it on the court? Do you keep it in your bag? Do you put it in the fridge? Do you keep it in the cabinet? Does it stay in the car? Does it stay on the sideline of the field? So where does it live? And then who were they as a brand? And so this was a case of, you know, it being both inspiration and information. Long story short, there were some functionalities, certainly, that we considered in terms of pourability and chugability and storage. But the central driver was really this this creative or brand vision that we called um, the science of sport. And so that concept really was our vision and our muse. And then we started to, to define what does science of sport look like? And that with that being our kind of driving driving vision, it allowed us to ideate and explore different concepts for packaging. We designed everything from the small bottle all the way up to the one gallon bottle. And we had these just gorgeous, very utilitarian, but very refined. It was like this rugged and refined balance. And, and it was gorgeous. And, you know, as gorgeous as a Gatorade bottle can be. <laughs> but, you know, it was very utilitarian and, and they really turned out well. That's amazing. So with Gatorade, tell mm -hmm. me what the story was again. Yeah, the science of sport. The science of sport. So there you had the science of sport. And then with classics, it was like this origin story. So you kind of start with the research that leads you to the story. And then the story helps build out all of the inspiration, I guess. Exactly. And, and it's up to um, the design team to kind of define what 
that vision, if it's not user-derived information, if it's brand-derived, then it's inspiration, let's say. And it's up to the design team to really define what that creative vision stands for. Like, for example, with, with American Express Centurion, which I probably shouldn't be talking about because the first rule of the black card is there there is no black card. Right. You know, it's this this credit card that, you know, is surrounded in lore and mystery and it can do this, it can it can it can do that. And, you know, since since then a lot of other credit card companies have kind of developed their own black card and so on. But at the time we were being being challenged to design the next generation of black card and rethink its messaging and packaging and how they invite new card members into the program. And it was a very different type of project. But from a creative vision standpoint, we still had to define those those uh, key attributes. So the descriptions or characteristics we came up with were for the card were, well, let me think, status, craftsmanship, myth, personalization, Man, I can't remember all of them, but there was a handful of them. But anyway, that was another example where we, you know, had these attributes that we really, you know, wanted to bring to life. Yeah, I love that because I think something that that triggered for me is like, you're talking about these key attributes and it's things that are like super based in research. Yeah. And I think for me, that's the difference because I've been at brands that have maybe had those key principles at some point around something. And then each season they come up with like new attributes and they're maybe more based in trend or it's like you need those defining key principles that are based on the brand or the product. And then from there, you can kind of start to apply these other filters. But when those key principles change without the proper research, I think is where brands start to go astray with their creative direction. Well put. Well put. I, I talk about those those guiding principles. I talk about those as pillars. Yes. And pil- pillars are, are what you stand for as a brand. And those should be your guiding principles. And those should be central to your vision. And those shouldn't change from season to season. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean you should be blind to seasonal trends or seasonal opportunities. Those can, you know, affect and and twist and turn what you do on a, on a seasonal basis. Yeah. But from a brand standpoint, it's important to stay true to your pillars. And I think the most successful brands that I've worked for, they've defined those and they've stayed true to them. And it, every meeting so much easier because you're like, well, does this answer this pillar? Okay. It's not always that black and white, but I think it is really nice to have those key brand drivers and really, really use them because I think a lot of brands have them and they don't necessarily use them. Agreed. And it takes a lot of the subjectivity out of it too, because it's it's less about uh, what is Christina like? What is Matt like? It's, is this right for our brand? And if we know what our brand stands for, then we know if it's right for the brand. And it, no, it, all, it may also be right for the brand. It may not be right for the brand in the near term, but then it also starts to beg the question, who are we? In the long term, what do we stand for five years from now, not next season? So then it starts to say, all right, who do we want to be? What is our long-term vision? What does our roadmap look like between now and five years from now? Because if you can start to define that, and that's a challenge because that really asks you to step away from your day-to-day 
and start to think about who you want to be five years from now, because that's something that you can ladder up to as a brand, but you may not get there overnight. Totally. Something that I also wanted to kind of touch on um, is I think, you know, you're known as a um, really strong, really great leader. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your leadership style and maybe a little bit into kind of as you were stepping into a leadership role, how that kind of came about and maybe some of your learnings from that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. So to me, design leadership is it's about inspiring and empowering your teams to do great work that that they care about. Yeah. That they can feel a sense of ownership of and 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 that that moves the brand and the business forward. I think uh, this is this is all something I've learned over time. It, you know, it wasn't snap my fingers and I'm, I'm good at something like this. Certainly made made my mistakes and you know hopefully had some good wins along the way. But you know I think after that probably comes clarity as a leader. You know bringing clarity, both clarity of vision, what we stand for and where we're headed, as well as a clarity of everybody's roles and responsibilities and expectations. I think those are all vital. Totally. So, yeah, I would say inspiring and empowering a team to, to do great work that, that they can feel good about and feel a sense of ownership of and, you know, that moves the brand forward and the business forward. What advice do you have for someone that's kind of stepping into a role where they're helping to set a creative vision? Sure. I mean, that's a big transition. You know, when you're, when you're stepping into that role, you're, you're going from a place where you've been successful um, at doing it yourself. Uh, being a great designer or having some success in design to now taking a role where you're expected to to lead others. And so being able to step back and take your hand off the pencil or, you know, step away from, you know, the, the laptop or the tablet, what have you. And when you do that, you have to recognize that your role is changing. You're there to inspire your team or to inform your team and let them do what they're great at. And so that can be difficult. It's hard not to step on people's toes, especially when, you know, you've been the one who's been asked to do the design work thus far, stepping back and now playing the role of a mentor or guide or peer. It, it can be a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. What were some of your biggest challenges and biggest wins with that? <laughs> you know, it's, that's, a, that's a great question. I think recognizing that in most cases, you'll be responsible for a team in which everybody is at a different place in their career. Right. Right. You're going to have some people who are very senior in an organization that may, may be on your team. They may report to you. You might have some folks who are just, just starting a very junior level or associate level. And you have folks who are very much in, in between. So understanding one, what everyone on the team needs from a leader and where everyone is in their career, what are their strengths? What are their passions? And, making sure that they're involved with projects that are going to feed those strengths and passions, but also projects that are going to push them out of their comfort zone to encourage them to grow. So it's, you know, it's, it's a different role for somebody just getting into that space because now you're responsible for the growth of your team and it's, and it's in your best interest to have a really strong, engaged, inspired team because 
it's going to make your brand and your product that much stronger right. and it's going to make your job that much easier. Right. So that's, there's just some, certainly some things to think about. I think as you sort of continue building as a designer, there's some obvious milestones to help progress. But I think sometimes when you transition into that more leadership role, those things aren't as clear. Was there anything that you did specifically to transition into leadership? Boy, I would say one that comes to mind is being proactive and and kind of creating roles and creating jobs and creating projects that you think are right for the brand where you see opportunity. I think I think for everyone that I've worked with, if you show that drive and that ambition and that proactivity and that hunger, it's going to be recognized. And whether or not those projects see the light of day to show that you're capable of doing more than your day job and you're interested in doing more than what you're asked to do. Yeah. I think that's going to bode really well. Yeah. I love that too, because it's a way of practicing. Absolutely. I think that's where... No risk. Yeah, no risk. Like I think sometimes that's where that learning curve is harder because as you're building your design career, you're kind of slowly getting more and more experience under your belt. And it seems like sometimes that transition from being a individual contributor to more of a leadership level isn't as incremented. And I would I would add to that, number one, I, w- I would agree with you. Two, I would say... The more you can reach out and connect with folks outside of your immediate discipline. Yes. If you're at a place like Reebok, connecting with the graphics team, the e-com team, the materials team, the apparel team, the sales team, obviously, you know, things like development, that type of thing. But connect with folks outside of your immediate team and look for opportunities to tell a much larger story. When you say, you know what, I spent the day working in the corporate store. And I learned this, that, and the other thing. Whoever you report to is going to say, "What you did? What? That's that's amazing. That's great. Let's do. Let's have everybody do that." Or you say, "Boy, you know what? I reached out to so and so in ecom because I noticed that our product isn't being presented in a way that really tells the backstory of how and why it, we came up with it. So I came up with this layout for him, and you know, just that, that proactivity and that reaching across the aisle to different disciplines shows that you're a much broader and bigger thinker and that you should be given responsibility to do those things. And it also makes your boss look a lot better because you could say, yeah, I asked, I asked him or I asked her to do that. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> but that, that ability to think holistically and act holistically, huge, huge. It's massive. You know, when I was in charge of, I guess, basically every team that I've that I've worked with, I've had my team, whether it's a junior designer or design manager, they're the ones presenting the designs. You know, I'll I'll lay the groundwork and frame things up, but we'll we'll practice beforehand. We'll do dry runs, and you know, I'll challenge them to say, "All right, you know your project really well." Whether it's, you know, whether it's boy, whether it's packaging for Pepsi or or you know, sneakers for for Reebok. You know it really well, but I'm challenging you to now present it in a way that makes it relevant or or valuable to this audience. So when you're now put on stage to present to XYZ audience, you know, I'll say, all right, what are what are the three most important things that you want to talk about? Yeah. You, you know, you might say three, there's twenty-three. 
Okay, now you've got a short window, you've got a small window. What are the most important ingredients? And if it's more than that, then maybe you need to simplify the design. But if you can capture what you want to talk about in, you know, say three elements or three points. So my, my, I guess my point here is as a leader, part of a leader's role is to grow the skills beyond just design, communication skills, things like that. I love that. And, you know, the other thing is it's, you know, it's, it's as much about presentation and design and, you know, mentorship and that type of thing as, as it is kind of to zoom out and say, all right, how's my team feeling? You know, how's the health of, how's the health of my team? And one of the things that I did at Reebok was introduce the Reebok design awards. And I don't know if they still do it, but you know, every season you wrap up your designs, you're in Asia at the factories, you get back and you've got, you know, a whole new season of stuff to work on and, and design, which is exciting, but it can be exhausting too. And on the consulting or agency side, it's the same thing. You might have three or four clients that you're juggling at one time. One finishes, you're on to the next. So it's so important in this industry to be able to press pause and just catch your breath and kind of celebrate your wins, whether big wins or little wins. And so I came up with the Reebok Design Awards. <laughs> it was totally off the cuff and it turned into a really big deal. And it was awesome. We, you know, I got the other design directors together at the end of the season and said, all right, everybody pick your top design for the year or excuse me for the season. And it can, you know, there's really no criteria. It's, it can be the most progressive. It could, you know, be the uh, the one that sold the most pairs of shoes. It could be the most commercial. It could be, maybe it never went to market, but it was the most inspirational. And on a Friday afternoon, we just said, all right, everybody get down to the, you know, the, whatever it was, cafeteria, the conference center, we're having the design awards. And we had food and we had drinks and we had a presentation on a big stage. And, you know, I designed these, uh, these awards. They're wooden shoe lasts with a logo laser etched into the front that said Reebok Design Award. And it became this big thing and people were really proud of it. It was awesome. And so that's not me patting myself on the back. It's just, you know, to really emphasize that it's important to press pause and, and celebrate the wins because you can get caught up in just a treadmill of projects and it's inspiring, but it can be exhausting. Totally. No, I love that. That's so fun. So something that I'm asking um, everybody is, what are you most proud of personal or work project? You know, and it, my, my time in consulting, we worked on so many great projects with so many just really super brands and talented people. Those engagements were shorter. You know, the projects were, were typically shorter, but they were exciting. And I was proud of almost all of them, I guess. The, the ones that I would say I'm most proud of probably required the most time and most investment and were probably the most complete. So I would say probably helping kind of bring the classics brand back to life. That Reebok was, was probably one of the ones I was most proud of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of dovetailing off of that, what does success look like to you? Mm, that's a great question. I think when the creative process is put on stage, when the creative process is, is shared, that's a big win because we're, we're very close to the creative process, the design process. 
we do it every day. And a lot of times we can take it for granted, but it's a rare, rare skill and a rare talent that really great designers have. And so when I see the creative process shared, when I, when I see it as part of a brand, people giving given access to how something's designed, how something's built, when that creative, when, when people get that peek behind the scenes, when they get that peek into the sketchbooks, you know, what we do for, as designers is the design process is magic, let's say. Yeah. And I think the creative process is really special. So I would encourage everybody in this, in this space and in this industry to share it, to celebrate it. Because the brands that do, they're, they're letting their consumers, their audience in on a secret. And they're being very transparent in that regard. And I think that has value. And I think the brands that can do that, that feel confident in what they're creating, confident enough in what they're building to show off how they got to where they got is that's admirable. And I think that's successful from a brand standpoint. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. What would you like to do more of or see the industry do more of in regards to creative vision and building brands? As far as the industry, I would like, I'd like to see the industry do less, but better. And I think, there are there are brands the brands that are designing and building really thoughtful, well executed, meaningful, timeless product. Those are the ones that I think are really making a difference. You know, product that we hold on to because it's not out of fashion in six months. Product that gets better with use. And it's not just heritage brands. The brands you know like like you know. Um, be it Red Wing or Pendleton or, or even, you know, L.O. Bean in some regards, what they do is really admirable. And they're, they've been doing it for a while with a very heritage lens. But I think there's a lot of outdoor brands that are rediscovering this appeal of longevity. Brands like Arcteryx and Patagonia, who are even North Face in some ways, are kind of rediscovering this idea of longevity and repaired product has an appeal used product has an appeal, almost celebrating the fact that it's been repaired because the product was so well designed that you want to hold on to it. And so I think there's a lot to be said around doing less better. I think that's really well said and I totally agree. Well, last question, just sort of something that I'm asking all designers and it's meant to inspire but what are you watching listening to and reading right now listening how i built this yes the npr series i'm a total i'm a total junkie watching i i have to say i've been super impressed by the short films put out by yeti i think oh they God. call them nice. yeti yeti presents or yeti films and they're just super inspiring you know they're less about the product but more about these just really aspirational outdoor lifestyles and just great lessons and perspectives on, I don't know, ambition, the outdoors, family, drive, doubt. It, it, you know, it, it really elevates their brand. Yeah. And they pick like perfect ambassadors. Absolutely. Um, reading, what am I reading? Uh, the Rise of, of Theodore Roosevelt. You know, Roosevelt was just, he was an amazing leader, conservationist, rancher, obviously president, 
basically responsible for for creating our national park system. And to me, that's just you know his record and and his history and what he's done. It's it's just it's a great reminder of how much we can accomplish when we put our entire self behind something. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was absolutely so good to catch up with you. And yeah, same with you. Thanks so much to Matt for coming on the show. I really enjoyed his perspective on vision and team leadership, and I hope you found it inspiring as well. As always, please check out our Instagram at save as podcasts for some additional images from today's discussions. Thanks for listening to the Save As Podcast. To help us get off the ground, we would love for you to subscribe, leave a rating or comment, and tell a friend. We would also love to collaborate with you. Who would you like to hear on the show? Please DM us and let us know.